0: Father, as we open up your word again tonight, we thank you for this chance to be here. We thank you for the McVickers opening up their condo again and uh, for the way that we can all cram in here and it's still very, very comfortable and we thank you for it. Uh, Lord, tonight as we deal with uh, as far as we get in chapter 16 tonight, continue to open up our eyes to some things that we're going to see here as we get close to the end of the tribulation period in this study. And Lord, again, um, you have a reason why you want us to know this book. We thank You that Your Word shows us that uh, through Jesus Christ we won't be here when this happens, yet You want us to study this for a reason, and You tell us there's a blessing if we know it and take it to heart. And so, Lord, tonight, that's what we're here for. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, before we get into chapter 16, I want you to go back to chapter 15, verses 5 through 8, to kind of set the stage for what it is we're about to see. Now, where we left off last week, remember John said in chapter 15, verse 8, i sorry, verse 5, After this I looked, and in heaven the temple, that is, the tabernacle of the testimony, was opened. Out of the temple came seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven <coughs> plagues of the seven angels, were completed. Now we're about to read what happens when these seven angels pour out their bowls over the wrath of God. So now, let's go to chapter 16, verse 1. It says, "...then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast, and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Now, What I want to show is that at this point in in the time period of the last seven year period on the uh, the earth here, before Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom, uh, at this point, this is the wrath of God and there's no more mercy. Remember, as we've been looking at the tribulation period, as God was having the different seals being opened and the trumpets being blown, there has been destruction on the earth, but not complete destruction, because God was trying to get man's attention. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go with me back to Revelation chapter 8. And we'll look at verses 8 and 9. In Revelation chapter 8, verse 8, it says, "...the second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea turned into blood. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed." What's the difference between the second trumpet and this first bowl? What's the difference? Not everybody's hit. Two-thirds. Yeah. When the second trumpet's blown, only a third of the seas are turned into blood. And when a third of the living seas die, but at this point, when the bowl judgments, when that first bowl is poured out, every living thing in the sea dies, and every aspect that is called ocean, if you will, or sea is turned to blood. Now, you've got you to gotta let this sink in for a minute. Can you imagine just the smell? You know, those of you that live here on the beach, it's nice now. You wouldn't want to be there then. Now, look also at Revelation chapter 8, uh, and look at the third trumpet. In verse 10, the third angel sounded his trumpet and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on the third of the rivers and on the springs of water. And it said the name of that star is Wormwood. And they, the water became bitter. At the, again, we see the rivers and the springs being affected, but only a third of them. Again, why? God is giving opportunity for repentance. When he, when he sent the destruction on only a third, it was to get their attention and to turn their hearts back to Him. At this point, though, when we see the bowls being poured out, it's the wrath of God being poured out. And all only that, and we saw in verse 8 of chapter 15, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Now remember, you got to keep in mind, it was pictured in heaven, how everybody's around the throne of God and everybody's worshiping God, but at this point, the temple becomes filled with smoke and everybody just backs away. We even see, don't turn there, but in Revelation chapter 20, when we get there, verse 11, it talks about the great white throne judgment. And, and when, G, when God sits on that throne and judges people because of their sin, those who aren't in the book of life, who have not received Jesus as their Savior, the Scripture says at that time when He sat on the throne, earth and sky fled from His presence. At this point, the wrath of God is being poured out. There's no more opportunity for salvation. There's no more opportunity for repentance. And uh, the judgments are pretty bad. And not only that we see that the angel in charge of the waters, it's a very interesting thing, and I've tried to do a little study on that to try to find out what's going on here. Uh, We don't know any more than this, but there seems to be an angel in charge of the waters, not the one who poured out the bowl, but it seems to be a separate angel here who's in charge of the waters, and whatever that means, he stands back and says, even though you're destroying what I've been responsible for, you're right in doing this. And he says, they've been thirsty for the blood of your prophets and for your saints. You've given them water to drink. Now, I'm sorry, blood to drink. Think think about what's going on here on the earth. Now every ocean, all the springs of water, all the rivers are all turned to blood. Oh, by the way, as you're about to see as we continue on, I think the Bible teaches that all of these bowls are poured out consecutively, and I believe they overlap. I don't think there's a period of time between the bowls. I think you're going to, buy, and I can show you scripturally how I think so, that the bowls are poured out. And this is at the very, very, very end of the tribulation period setting up for the battle of Armageddon. And we're going to be taking a look at that a little bit tonight. So let's move on now, though, to chapter 16, verses 8 through 16. It appears like we're moving right along, but you're about to see we probably won't get any further than these verses tonight with all that we're going to have to look at in this next section. Says the fourth angel poured out his bowl, verse eight of chapter sixteen. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. Now the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet." They are the spirits of demons performing miraculous signs as they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together in the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. We're going to stop right here. And uh, like I say, time wise, we probably won't have time to get much further in this chapter because there's so much here I want us to pull out. Look at the question? fifth bowl. Yes, go ask right ask ahead. Sure. When is this revelation, that the parts you're reading, 15 and 16, when is that supposed to be happening? The behold, I come like a thief? If you can hang on. Yeah, well, if you can hang on, that will be answered in a little bit.
1: Okay. In All right. my
0: verse 15, mm-hmm. uh, it's in red. Right, Jesus is saying that. This is Jesus saying that. If you'll hang on, we're going to come back to that section. So that's a good question, and it will be answered tonight. What I want to show you first, though, is look at verse 10. It says, The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. And men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. When did they receive the pains and the sores? When mark of the beast. And the, uh, Which bowl? The, first bowl, the first bowl? the first bowl. So it's obvious that during the fifth bowl being poured out in the darkness, people are still in agony because of the first bowl. You see how they're overlapping here. This is going to happen all in rapid succession as God brings His judgment. Now, there are those that try to bring a similarity between uh, the plagues at the time of Moses in Egypt and with what's here. As I really looked at it, I don't think you can fully try to do that. There are definitely some similarities with the blood, and the water turning to blood in the time of darkness and, and different things like that. But for the most part, you really can't make them exactly the same. And to say that what God did in Egypt is what He's doing here, it's not. But there are definitely some similarities. But what I want to talk about tonight for a little bit is what happens in verse 8. This is real global warming right here, alright? It says, The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given fire to scorch people with fire. i want to take a little detour from our study of Revelation tonight, and I want to take you in a little side study about global warming. I really think that, that it's necessary for us as Christians to be biblically educated as to things that are going on in our world. And there's a tendency sometimes for us to get caught up in different things, but not really understand what the Bible has to say about it. So if you'll stick with me, I want to walk you through a biblical understanding of this whole global warming issue that we have. And the first thing that I want to set out, and I want you to to say stick with me until I've explained fully what the Bible talks about here. But the first thing that I want you to understand is the Bible, and I'm about to show you this, the Bible says that it's a very arrogant thing for us to even think that we can control the weather. To think that we as humans actually have comp- control over climate changes and the weather on our planet. I don't care what Hugo Chavez says. I don't care if he accuses us of having a, a, an earthquake weapon. You know, and, that, and I don't know if you heard that. He, he actually said that the, the, what happened in Haiti was because Americans were testing their earthquake weapons weapon, you know, that we have the ability to make earthquakes in different parts of the planet. Who cares what that nut says? It's not true. We really don't have as much control over this planet as we think we do. And I'm going to prove it to you from Job chapter 36 and chapter 37 and 38. So put a bookmark here in Revelation 16 and come back with me to the book of Job. It's right before the book of Psalms. And we're going to start in Isaiah. I'm sorry, in Job chapter 36. In this situation, uh, Elihu is speaking, and Job, as you know, if you know the story of Job, has gone through these trials, and God's been doing something that he has in mind, and Job, of course, doesn't know what God's doing with all that he's gone through. And at this point, Job's been saying, if only I could have a face-to-face with God. You know, I could talk to Him and defend my case. Elihu speaks for God, and this is what he says in verse 26 into chapter 37. Chapter 36, verse 26 says, "...how great is God." Beyond our understanding, the number of his years is past finding out. He draws up the drops of water which distill as rain to the streams. The clouds pour down their moisture with abundant showers, and abundant showers fall on mankind. Who can understand how he spreads out the clouds, how he thunders from his pavilion? See how he scatters his lightning about him, bathing the depths of the sea? This is the way he governs the nations and provides food in abundance. He fills his hand with lightning and commands it to strike its mark. His thunder announces the coming storm, and even cattle make known its approach. At this my heart pounds and leaps from its place. Listen, listen to the roar of his voice, to the rumbling that comes from his mouth. He unleashes his lightning beneath the whole heaven and sends it to the ends of the earth. After that comes the sound of his roar. He thunders with his majestic voice. When his voice resounds, he holds nothing back. God's voice thunders in marvelous ways. He does great things beyond our understanding. He says to the snow, (coughs) "Excuse me, fall on the earth and to the rain shower, be a mighty downpour, so that all men that He has made know His work. He stops every man from His labor. The animals take cover. They remain in their dens. The tempest comes out from its chamber. The cold from the driving winds. The breath of God produces ice and the broad waters become frozen. He loads the clouds with moisture, he scatters his lightning through them. At his direction they swirl around over the face of the whole earth to do whatever he commands them. He brings the clouds to punish men or to water his earth and show his love. Listen to this, Job, stop and consider God's wonders. Do you know how God controls the clouds and makes his lightning flash? Do you know how the clouds hang poised? Those wonders of him who who is perfect in knowledge. "...you who swelter in your clothes when the land lies hushed under the south wind, can you join him in spreading out the skies, hard as a mirror of cast bronze?" Now it's interesting, at this point, Elihu is coming and speaking for God. By the way, the other three guys that speak, they think, for God are told at the end that, that they didn't say what was right. Now it's an interesting study. You'll find that everything that those three guys said about God is in itself true. It didn't apply to Job's case. But in this time, Elihu was never corrected for saying things that were not true. And Elihu, Elihu, when he talks to Job, says, "All right, I understand you want to have your face-to-face with God, but let me just talk to you about how big this God is. And in doing so, he goes straight into a description of God's power and His authority over the weather. It's a very interesting thing. But then God Himself shows up now in chapter 38, and look at how God defends Himself in chapter 38. It says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me, Job, is what's being said here. Where were you, Job, when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place? When I said, this far you may come and no farther? Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? That it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth take shape like clay under a seal its features stand out like those of a garment the wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep have the gates of death been shown to you have you seen the gates of the shadow of death have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth tell me if you know all this what is the way to the abode of light and where does darkness reside can you take them to their places do you know the paths to their dwellings Surely you know, for you are already born, you have lived so many years. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed, or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path of a thunderstorm, to water a land where no man lives, a desert with no one in it? To satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass? Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens when the waters become hard as stone, when the surface of the deep is frozen? Can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? Can you loose the cords of Orion? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you, here we are? We are endowed with heart. Who endowed the heart with wisdom or gave understanding to the mind? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of the heavens when the dust becomes hard and the clods of earth stick together? Isn't it interesting that when God Himself shows up, to have this face-to-face with Job. And he says, look, you're free to ask me any question you want. But let me ask you a couple ones first. And when he asked his questions, God uses His authority over creation and the weather. Isn't that interesting? Because ultimately, as intelligent as we may think we are, we may say we think there's going to be lightning. But we can't tell you where it's going to strike. But God knows, and He orchestrates, the Bible says, everywhere it lands. On top of that, we may say, well, we know how what, what causes thunder, yet at the same time, we don't have any control of whether it's going to rain or not going to rain. As intelligent as we are, with all of our scientific knowledge that we have nowadays, one good power outage and we're all sitting around waiting for the sun to come up. <laughs> we're ultimately inept to control the weather, correct? So when we talk about this climate change stuff, we start talking about all this global warming, understand who we really are. The Bible is very clear. We humans have no control over the weather. We're dust. Dust can't control anything. That's right. But now there's a danger here. Because we have a tendency as Christians to run to extremes. We can say, well, we really have no control over the weather, therefore it doesn't matter what we do. Oh, don't go there. Because if you're going to study the whole of Scripture, you'll see that actually God is going to hold us accountable for how we treat the planet. It's very clear that the Bible teaches that back in Genesis chapter 1, when He created the earth and He made the garden and He put Adam and Eve in it, He gave them dominion over the whole earth, and they were given responsibility to subdue it, to rule it. But He will hold them accountable. You know how I know? There's an interesting little story if you do a little study, and, and, and I'm going to give you scriptures to look, look up and later on. If you want to write these down and do this, you can. It's a, it's a very interesting study. Uh, but if you look at Leviticus chapter 25, chapter 26, and 27, you'll see that God gives instructions about the land. And he also gives instructions about Sabbath years, and that the nation of Israel was to give the land a rest every seventh year. They were not to farm it. And they were to trust that God would provide for them during those other six years, that they would have enough, that on that seventh year, they'd let the land rest. What well, we see in 2 Chronicles 36, verse 21, that when God took the nation of Israel and brought them into captivity in Babylon for those 70 years, it wasn't just because of their idolatry, but it was also to give the land the 70 years of rest that they had not done over the last 490 years. God had said, every seventh year I want you to give the land a rest and I want you to trust that I'll provide. They didn't do it. And so God said over these last 490 years there should have been 70 Sabbaths for the land, And so to give the land the 70 years of rest that I had already prepared for it, you're going to be in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And it says in Second Chronicles 36, verse 21, that that's part of the reason why they were in captivity. We even see then in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 21, I'm sorry, Jeremiah ch- chapter 10, uh, verses 25, verses 10 and 11. There are Jeremiah 25, verses 10 and 11, that God talks about that and the fact that the captivity is going to be 70 years. So the Bible teaches that we are going to be held accountable for how we treat the earth because we've been given responsibility over it. But don't think that your responsibility and your ability to control things means that we have actually control over the weather. The Bible is very clear we don't. God does. And He alone does. And oh, by the way, look back at Revelation chapter 16. Who's actually making the sun scorch man? God is. Look closely what it says. And the sun... The, the angel, fourth angel poured out his bowl in the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify Him. Ultimately, folks, we have no control over the weather. So don't think that, oh no, we're going to affect the planet and climate. No. But don't sit back and say that we can do whatever we want. We're going to be responsible. Now, let me add one little thing to this, and then we'll get back to our Revelation study. <coughs> We just said that we don't really control the weather. We don't. We also have just said, though, that God's going to hold us accountable for how we treat the planet. There's a different. There's a danger now of us starting to start to judge each other as to whether or not we're taking care of the Earth well. And I could judge whether or not your recycle bin's full enough, or you could judge me over whether or not I uh, um, drive an American-made car that's guzzling gas versus a foreign car that sips it, or whatever. And we can start judging each other as to whether or not we're being good stewards. We have individual relationships with the Lord and we have individual responsibility before Him, don't take this truth that we're going to be held accountable and start to judge each other of whether or not they're being green enough. It gets back to legalism. It gets back to legalism. Yeah. We have to have hondas. We have to have hondas? <laughs> so we all go in one accord? Yes. Yeah, I understand. I, yeah, I know that joke as well. So yes, but but I want, what I want you to hear is this. We need to be responsible, but don't start judging each other of whether or not you're being responsible enough. But don't ever think that, boy... We're affecting the planet's climate. Now, God's really clear that we really have no control over that at all. None at all. All right? It's interesting that uh, uh, Gore in his propaganda says that the uh, ice caps are melting. And uh, the scientists have found that the ice caps are melting on Mars, too. They must be driving the wrong cars up there. <laughs> Well, like I say, we can get into all the scientific data and start to find out some of it wasn't even true. So, well, they just that just came out. Too the cool. whole Himalayan thing, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yep. No, they lied. He just planned... Well, there was some, some that was so faulty equipment though too. Yeah, yeah. but then there definitely. Those that was last year. Lied, but those last guys year. just said we lied. Yeah, we made it up. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Like I say, don't get all caught up in it. Don't get all caught up in it. Realize, like I say, if we had global warming, I wouldn't have my coat on right now. So. <laughs> We're going to get a new heaven and a new earth. That's correct. Yes, sir. The weather, if you think about it, really what we do is we follow it. They predict it, the weather people. But for the most part, we run and hide. That's true. We do run and hide. And let's be honest. If it rains, if it rains we're running. If there's any a hurricane, we're running. we're running and hiding. We're old, like he said, we read there in Job, God stops men from work to let him know that he's in control. And let's be honest. Wouldn't it be awesome to have the job of weatherman? You don't even have to be right. You don't even have to be close, to, be to, be right. close to right, and they're still there the next night. And nobody has a fuss, and we still listen. You know. All right. Now, let's move on. Now, I want to deal with the question you had there in verse uh, 15. It's very it's just kind of interesting in the midst of this that God says, and Jesus is speaking here. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. How is this an evidence that the rapture is prior to the tribulation period? Can anybody give me an idea? Well, we already know that. How is this verse? How would this verse help us see that the rapture is prior, the rapture of the church is prior to the tribulation period? It's kind of it's kind of vague, but it's here. Tribulation is going to be for the people who are left behind. That's See, correct. Who, and, you know, the tribulation's not is not for the faithful. It's who, not for the church. Who have done, that's right. Have done their best to you know keep the commandments. Well, and follow the Lord. Right, the but from this verse, from this verse. He that watches. He that watches. Close. We got a couple of hands in the back. What do you think? Uh, have, there you go. Well. Yeah, well, these are people. These are people that are alive at this time. But you're still using other verses. There's still a chance that they can be saved. The, at this point, no I don't think there's any chance at this point. But right over here, she's she's got it close to. She, it says, Jesus says, "Behold, I come like a thief. If the church were around while these bowls were being poured out, would it be a surprise when he comes back?" For those of us who know Him and know His Word, if we've been studying the Scriptures, if we're alive at this time, behold, I come like a thief. What, are you kidding me? Once I start seeing the boils and uh, uh, the ocean turned to blood and the rivers turn to blood, there's no coming like a thief. But we're going to be gone, those who would recognize these signs. We're not going to be here. This message is for those who are going to be alive at that time. But at the same time, this is also a call for those to respond during the tribulation period. Because I can guarantee you that those who are coming to faith or those who are being drawn by the Spirit during the tribulation period are going to be looking in this book to find out what's going on. But at this point, there's no more mercy. At this point, there's no more mercy. This isn't really tied to the timing. It's just in the middle of this, the message from Jesus is simply this, when I come, it's going to, boom, it's going to happen right away. no mercy because the church, the people of the church will be gone. They'll yeah, but there's still going to be so mercy. There's not to be the mercy for the oh, there's still left behind. There's still, there will be mercy for those left behind because there are those who come to faith. Remember back in chapter 6, we see the souls of those who were killed for their faith in Jesus after, during the tribulation. And they were after after the saying, when are you going to revenge?" After the rapture. the people that So the people are going to be saved, so there will be mercy of God. People will come to faith during that time period. So the blessing is for those who are tribulation saints. This is for the. Are. This message is being given to the tribulation saints. will not they be. have to die though for Christ? They don't have to die to be a tribulation saint. Many will because they haven't they taken the mark of the beast. It's going to be very hard, and but there will are. be some who right. make it all the way right. through the tribulation. Go ahead. There will be mercy, but uh, uh, the church is freed from the tribulation. We're, we're spared the wrath of saints may have mercy and they may be given salvation, but they're still going to go through the tribulation. They won't be spared the tribulation. No. Not at all. No. So they won't depa- through some will, some will. Some will be killed yeah. because they don't take the mark of the beast. They don't worship His image. And if you don't take the mark of the beast, you can't buy, you can't sell, you can't eat. So many will be killed. But there will be some that make it through. There will be some who make it through. No, there's, I think, personally, by the time the, the bowls of God's wrath are being poured out, there's no fence. There's no fence. This is. Remember, the temple's filled with smoke. Everybody runs from His presence. This is the wrath of God. Go ahead, Ron. That was true also from the fifth temple. Yes. I, I honestly think there comes... But I'm just saying, during these bowls, there's no more mercy. When the actual time of God's mercy comes to an end wiser men than I have wrestled with, you know. But I know this much. When the bowls are being poured out and that temple's filled with smoke, the mercy's gone. The wrath is is being poured out on man. But it's interesting. Look at the sixth bowl. What happens when the sixth bowl's poured? Water dries up. What dries up? The water. Well, which one? Euphrates. 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 The Euphrates River is dried up for the kings of the east to come. Now, depending on what commentator you study, some say it's China, others say it's the Koreas. We don't know, but all I know is this. At this point, because of these demon frogs, if you will, that are coming out of the mouth of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, they deceive all the kings of the earth to come to fight in Jerusalem, or outside of Jerusalem, in this battle called, or the place called, in Hebrew, Armageddon. Now, there's a little tidbit here. This is the only place you'll see the word Armageddon in the Bible. But I'm going to show you that the place it's talking about has been mentioned in the Bible many, many times. This word in Hebrew, Armageddon, means Mount of Megiddo. Okay? And so what I want to do is, later on if you guys want to, you can go look at one of your maps in the back of your Bible and you can see where Mount Megiddo is. There is a valley that runs right along in that area. Some call, times in the Bible it's called the Jezreel. Valley of Jehoshaphat or Valley of Jezreel. Um, It's actually a valley that runs about 180 miles long. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Remember at the end of chapter 14, the blood from that battle flowed as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia, around 180 miles? God, at this point, as all this stuff was going on, is deceiving the kings to come... And to fight there outside of Jerusalem, in this what we call the land of Palestine, or the land of Israel there, in this valley of Jezreel. And I want to talk to you and I want you to follow along with me. We're going to do a little study here. I'm going to show you that God has been fighting many battles in this valley all throughout history and defeating over and over and over, but man still doesn't listen. And you'd think, man, if these people even read their Bibles, they'd know better than to go into this valley. But remember they've been deceived by these demons that go and convince them to come. But um, let's put a bookmark here and come, go to Second Chronicles, Chapter Thirty Five. Second Chronicles, Thirty Five. Look at verse twenty two. This talks about how Josiah died, and it says, Josiah, however, would not turn away from him, but disguised himself to engage him in battle. He would not listen to what Nico had said at God's command, but went to fight him on the plain of what? Megiddo. Megiddo. This is in that valley there by Mount Megiddo. Oh, well, by the way, if you do a little study, you'll find that Mount Carmel's in that area, and Mount Nebo, and you've got a lot of very interesting stories from the Bible that all happened overlooking this valley. Another place is in Judges chapter 5, verse 19. Go to the book of Judges real quick. Judges Judges chapter 5. Somebody read verse 19 for us. Again, we see another battle happening there when the Canaanites were defeated, the kings of Canaan, by the waters of Megiddo. Take it one more, and then we're going to just mainly list some, so you don't have to keep taking all our time turning. Go to Zechariah chapter 12. Look at verse 11. Somebody read verse 11 for us. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be great. Like the weeping of are in the plain of Megiddo. Again, we see the Megiddo has been listed in the Scriptures. But actually, do you all know that actually it was in this same valley that we call the Valley of Megiddo or... By the Mount Megiddo, or the Valley of Jezreel, or the Valley of Jehoshaphat, this big plain there in the center of the land of Israel, just west of the Jordan River. Do you know that it was there that Gideon defeated the Midianites with his three hundred men and the torches and pots? Hmm. Did you also know that that's where Samson took the jawbone of a donkey and slew all those Philistines? Thousand. How many? Thousand. Thousand. Did you know that it was also there that David slew Goliath? And then the nation of Israel chased after the Philistines and defeated them. These are just a few, by the way. I could have listed a whole lot more, but you get the idea. If you really do a study, you'll find that actually a lot of battles have been fought. And actually a lot of battles since biblical times have been fought. That's where uh, Napoleon, by the way, ended up losing a battle. He thought, sure, he was going to win. And he stood and looked over that valley and this is what he said. He said, this is the greatest battle battlefield and the history of the planet. And he said all the nations of the earth could actually muster their troops on this valley. They Little did will. he know. They will. They will. Yeah. They, will. Yeah. they will. But the Euphrates River is actually 1,800 miles long. And it has served as kind of like a border between the east and the west there because of that river. There are parts of it that are very, very deep, and parts that are super, super wide. And Actually, if if you look later on at other places in prophecies, it won't take the time to turn there, but like in the book of Isaiah and other places, it talks about how God's going to dry it up and people can walk over on it by foot. But I want to read to you a very interesting passage. It's in Joel chapter 3. I want you to turn to the book of Joel. Because Joel chapter 3 talks about this time where God's going to gather all the nations... At the end of that tribulation period, all the nations for battle in this valley. We're going to start in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to go to chapter 3, verses 9 through 16. It says, In those days, chapter 3 of Joel, verse 1, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will enter into judgment against them concerning my inheritance, my people Israel. For they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. They cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes, and they sold girls for wine that they might drink. Oh, by the way, that includes us. When it talks about bringing all the nations, that means us too. You know why? We're involved. We, and when I mean us, I mean the United States. We've been involved in helping Israel divide the land too, have we not? Have we not had presidents, and it doesn't matter which side of the aisle they've been on, have we not had presidents who have gone into Israel and tried through these quote-unquote peace talks to give them to divide the land and give some to the Palestinians and so on? Whatever's left of us at this time will be brought into battle as well. It says all the nations of the earth. Go to chapter, nine, uh, chapter 3, verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations, prepare for war. Rouse the warriors, let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords, and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weakling say, I am strong. Come quickly, all you nations, from every side, and assemble there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations be roused, let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow, so great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will be darkened, and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the sky will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for His people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Why is God gathering these people, all these nations in the the valley of Jehoshaphat or the valley of Jezreel? Judgment. Judgment. And what happens? Does anybody know what happens at the end of this battle? What's that? It's pretty much very good, Nicole. Nicole's way ahead of us here. She said it sounds like the same thing as Revelation 14. Go back. To Revelation chapter 14 verses 14 through 20 John says I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like the son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the clouds swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar, and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth and gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. There they were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as a horse's bridle for a distance of 1,600 stadia, or by the way, the distance of that valley there in the center of Israel. It's at the end of this battle that Jesus Himself comes back. It's at the end of this battle that Jesus Himself comes on the white horse and He steps up on the Mount of Olives and it's split in two and the Millennial Kingdom begins. But I want you to see, as we've been here in Revelation chapter 16 so far, that God is controlling everything. He's orchestrating it all. At this point, He's just bringing judgment on the earth. He's bringing judgment on the earth. But we haven't got to the seventh bowl yet, have we? I'm going to read this section to you. Like I say, we won't have time to really break it down as much as I will next week. And next week, by the way, if you're able to be here, we're going to take a look at a really interesting study as to where all false religion has come from. We're going to go back to the book of Genesis and to a man named Nimrod and false worship that has begun back way back then. We're going to tie it in with the Tower of Babel. And when we look at chapter 17, the woman on the beast, you're going to find that it is false religion that all originated back in Babylon, the time of Babel, because of a man named Nimrod. And then we're going to look at some other places in Jeremiah and others that are just going to shock you when you read what was really going on and what has carried on from that day. But for right now, look at verses 17 to the end of the chapter of chapter 16 says the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake, the great city, this is Jerusalem, split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. By the way, does anybody know what we just read there about the hail? What does that tie into with something we we read earlier today? Job. Job. Go back real quick to Job chapter 38. Look at verses 22 and following. It says, Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? Isn't that interesting with all of our nuclear weapons and all of our smart bombs? Now we've been working on lasers, kind of like catch up with Star Trek. You know, I heard the military's working on laser guns and stuff like that. All God needs to wipe out man is hail, hundred pounds apiece coming down from, from, from the sky, and wiping everybody out. You can do it with earthquakes too. You can do it with earthquakes too. All the whole earth, as we know it, is going to be leveled flat. It's going to be leveled flat. The islands are going to be gone. The mountains are going to be gone. It's going to be leveled flat. There's going to be absolute chaos. But then, at that point, God comes and sets up His kingdom. Satan, as you're going to see in a little bit, is thrown into the abyss and he's going to be bound for a thousand years and all this. But what I want to do as we wrap this up though is, is I want to show you real quick though that Jesus talked about this in Matthew 24. We've seen these bowls of wrath being poured out. We've seen the boils. We've seen the sun scorching people. We've seen the darkness. We've seen uh, the earthquake. Go with me to Matthew 24. We'll stop here for tonight and then we'll come back next week and, and look at it in a little bit more detail. In Matthew 24, we'll start in verse 15. He's already warned about the famines and earthquakes and those are just the beginning of birth pains, he says. But in verse 15 of chapter 24, he says, When you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through Daniel the prophet, let the reader understand, but let those in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Now before we go any further, what is the abomination that causes desolation that we read about? What is that? The Antichrist. It's the, the Antichrist. Temple. Stepping into the temple, declaring the himself to be God. Correct? Now when does this happen? Midpoint of the at the midpoint of the tribulation. That's why he's telling the Jews at this time to get out of Israel. Run. Because at that point, the guy that signed the peace treaty is going to show up for who he really is. He's going to be indwelt by Satan himself and he is going to turn against the people of God, against the Jews, and Jesus said, get out. The Bible says that he's going to protect them in the wilderness for a while. And we saw earlier in Revelation how John saw this dragon chase after the, the child who was born of the woman and it spewed out after him but the earth opened up and protected them and all that. This is when they're told to go run. Now the second half of the tribulation is happening. This is where the Antichrist is going to be doing wicked things and setting up His image, and people are going to worship it, but those who believe are going to be tortured. In verse 23, Jesus goes on and says, At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there He is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect if that were possible. See, I've told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you there he is out in the desert, don't go out, or here he is in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened. When does that happen? At the end of the seven years. Which bowl? sun is darkened when? The fifth bowl. Remember the darkness? At least we know there's darkness over the kingdom of the Antichrist. Now, we don't know if this is going to be Babylon itself or if it's going to be the whole world since he's going to be kind of trying to rule the whole world. We don't know the extent of it. but We know the fifth bowl is darkness. Oh, and by the way, I don't know how God's able to do it. There's lots of people that try to speculate on how. Don't worry about it because back in the time of Moses, he made it so dark in in Egypt, it was like the, the Scripture said it could be felt. But yet... In Goshen, where the where the the Israelites were, they had light. So don't try to come up with some physical phenomenon. God just made it so He can do it. He made it so dark they couldn't even see. But it says it said it said that um, this time. Sorry again, verse twenty nine. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And He will send His angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather His elect. These are the believers that are left through the tribulation period from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson. Well, before I read this lesson, why are the people on the earth mourning when Jesus comes back? Because they know there's no more in trouble. Yeah. It's kind of like, oh, dip, he was right. They're mourning. That's why it says that their people are going to weep. It's going to be weeping. But Look at what it says. It says, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, by my words will never pass away. Now there's a very interesting little thing here that Jesus is saying. He said, I tell you the truth, verse 34, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. What generation is he talking about? Was he talking about the generation that heard him say this? The generation that sees Israel come into being. Well, and I lean in that direction because of the fig tree, and we're going to get to that. It could be that it's just talking about the generation that sees the distress of these days. Right. It could be that. Yet, I think that it's still tied to this fig tree comment. Because throughout Scripture, the nation of Israel has been described as a fig tree. And actually, interestingly enough, in the last week that Jesus was on the earth, as He was in Jerusalem, walking back and forth from Bethany every night, um, He sees this fig tree, and it didn't have any fruit. And And He cursed it. And the next day they come by and they see that it was dead and the, the, uh, the, the disciples were astonished. I, and I've wondered if that was a picture of what Jesus was saying to the nation of Israel, your time's, your, your time's up. Now, of course, as we see from Scripture, He wasn't ultimately done with them. He put them on hold, if you will, and He did His church age thing. And then, at a, those last seven years, He'll pick back up with the nation of Israel. As we've said before, we've seen Ezekiel 37 in the Valley of Dry Bones starting to happen as He has gathered the nation of Israel who appeared dead for almost 2,000 years back from all the nations He has scattered them. They've come back to life, yet they don't have the Spirit of God within them yet. But He's brought them back into the land. And if, let me say this again, if Jesus is referring to the generation that sees the rebudding of the nation of Israel, the fig tree, if that's what He's referring to, what he's saying is the generation that sees Israel come back into the land will not pass away until all these things have been fulfilled. That would be us. But now here's the big debate that people have. Well, wait a minute. I thought a generation was only 40 years. There's a man back in 1988 who wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 1988. Well, he didn't read the fact that the Bible says no one knows when he'll come back, but at the same time... He was doing it from the fact that the nation of Israel became a nation again in 1948. And he did 40 years of a generation. He thought the generation would have to you know, be 1988. Well, you can't say that a generation is, is, is only 40 years. They try to use Psalm 95, verse 10. And in that passage, it's, God says, I was angry with that generation for 40 years. It doesn't say that a generation is 40 years. It just says that God was angry with that generation for 40 years. It doesn't, say the generation died. it doesn't say the generation died. Neil, I'm assuming you're over 40 years old, right? Are you still part of your generation? Yes. You're still part of your generation. So your generation has lived past 40 years. Actually, if you do a study in Matthew chapter 1, you'll see the genealogies. And it says it was 14 generations from this guy to this guy, 14 generations from this guy to this guy, and so on. Well, if you actually break the bath down, and it's a lot of work for people that love to do that stuff, and I thank God someone else has done the work and I don't have to, those generations add up to like 50-something, 51.2 years or something. Well, then we also have a place in Scripture that talks about how four score, you know, or, or sorry, three score and, and, and ten. You know, three, three score and ten and how 70 years. But also the Bible says that God's Spirit will not strive with man always. His limit is what? Hundred and twenty years. So we don't know how long a generation is. We just know this, and I believe what you just said. I believe we are in the terminal generation. Well, then, too, you know, when he says that, that, you know, to to God, you know, a thousand years. This is as a day. A day is like a thousand years. So you know, and then you you know, not the day or the hour. And then you know, I mean, I I just think to, to try to. We're not going to figure it out, but what I'm telling you is this. If, and that's why I want you to hear that word if. If Jesus here in Matthew 24 is referring to the generation that sees the nation of Israel rebud in the fig tree, we're in that last generation. We're in it right now. How many more years do we have left? Don't try to figure it out. But be ready. Because He's going to gather His church before the tribulation begins. Now, there are those that think that rapture occurs and then the tribulation begins. The Bible doesn't really say there could be a time period between the rapture of the church and the signing of the covenant to begin that last seven year period with the nation of Israel. We don't know. But like I said, if this is what Jesus is referring to when he talks about the, learning the lesson from the fig tree, we're in the last generation, folks. And with that in mind, it behoove us to not only know what this book says, but to share the truth with our friends. The Spirit of God's gonna be the one opens their eyes. The Spirit of God's gonna be the one to convict them. But at least we need to be faithful to say time is running out. When's it gonna end? Oh, we don't know. But I think it's soon. I think God it's very, very soon. It. I'm sorry. When God wants. When God wants. Actually, do you know that the Bible actually says that the day's already been set? Does anybody know that? See, we always talk about no one knows the day of the hour. We I think know. that it hasn't been set. Actually, it's in Acts chapter 17. I'm gonna wrap up with this passage. I want you to see it. Acts chapter 17. My daughter was here really chuckling at me because I said I'm going to wrap up with this three times already. So. Look at verse 31. Acts 17, 31. Paul's preaching to the Areopagus there in Athens and he says, For He, God, has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed, He has given proof of this to all men by raising Him from the dead. He's already set the day. It's already known by God. When is it? We don't know. But it's coming very, very, very soon. That's why Matthew 24:44 goes with it, that we should be ready for a week and an hour as we think that the Son of Man comes. Right. Now He comes for the church first. And then later he'll come for everybody else, you know, in judgment. And he's going to sum set up the kingdom. And amazingly, he'll come like a thief to those people, even in the midst of all that stuff. He'll come like a thief. Why? He has eyes to hear, eyes to see, and ears to hear. To so them, it'll be a surprise. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this chance to open up your word. I thank you for the fact that we're able to uh, to to not only study it, but at the same time. Uh, know that by Your grace, we're living in a time period in which we're going to be spared this. But Lord, You've given this to us for a reason. Uh, this book is here for a reason. And uh, there are going to be people that are going to live through that time period. And I just feel an urge right now, Lord, just to bring them before You. Lord, You prayed for us in the garden in John chapter 17 long before we were born. And so we're going to pray right now, Lord, for those that are going to go through that period coming up. Lord, that by Your grace, they'll be able to stand strong and say no to the enemy and not to worship the beast or his image. Lord, at the same time, may we not become people that look to man for our provision, but for you as well and how we love our li- live our lives today. And Father, we thank you that the time is coming close when all this is going to end. Because I know I feel it, and I know many other brothers and sisters feel it. We're weary of this life. We're ready for you to come. And as you, Paul, you through Paul told Timothy... Uh, that He was longing for Your appearing, and You reward all those who are longing for Your appearing. Lord, may we be those people who are looking for You to come and get us, and we know that not long after that, uh, individually people will come to You during the tribulation period, but then You'll come to set up Your kingdom. And we are ready. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray this in Your name. Amen.